Hey everyone, welcome back to 51%'s Crypto Research Podcast. Today I have on Mance Harmon, the CEO and co-founder of Hedera Hashgraph. For those who don't know, Hedera Hashgraph is a public distributed ledger for building decentralized applications. The project's gained a lot of interest and has raised $124 million bucks at a $6 billion valuation. Our conversation covers the dynamics of the platform, an update of their mainnet launch, governance Hedera, and where the project fits into the ever-growing world of crypto. Mance shares a ton of great information that's worthwhile. I was a little under the weather, but I think the conversation went well. As an aside, our podcast doesn't have any sponsors. Instead, we point our listeners to 51pct.io, our research site where we publish the most original crypto analysis in the space, read by top investors and analysts around the world. If you think our podcast is detailed, check out our reports linked below. With that, here's my conversation. Vance. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today in the podcast, I have Mance Harmon, the CEO and co-founder of Hedera Hashgraph. How's it going, Mance? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have us. So let's get started on how you got started in crypto. Yeah. Well, so I was working as the head of labs and architecture for an identity company, Ping Identity, back in 2013, 2014 timeframe. And um, and of course, there are a lot of identity applications associated with blockchain. And we decided to take a look. It turns out that at about the same time, my co-founder now, Lehman Baird, was working on an alternative approach to consensus, distributed consensus. He started it back in 2012. And of course, today, that's what we call the hash graph. He figured it out in 2015. And, um, and it just we just happened to be working on the same things at about the same time, recognized the value that Hashgraph you know, brought to the table and decided to commercialize it. So Lehman and I, just by the way, Lehman and I have been working together for a really long time, way beyond, way, way before the 2012, 2013 timeframe. We started working together in 1993 and um, we were working for the Air Force senior scientists for machine intelligence doing basic research and machine learning. And then we both taught computer science at the Air Force Academy. And then I managed a big software program for the Missile Defense Agency. And, and he went off to do other things for the Air Force. And we decided ultimately to become entrepreneurs. And so we've started two previous companies in the space of identity and access management and sold both of those. And, uh, and he was just uh, solving, you know, trying to solve this really hard math problem of how to have distributed consensus that's secure, fundamentally secure at scale. And, uh, and as I've already said, he started working on that in 2012, worked for years to try and solve that problem and, and had a breakthrough in 2015. And we decided to, to commercialize it. And then here we are, three years, almost four years later now. That's that's awesome. It's a great story, especially to build something with such a close friend after all those years. And you know, just before we get into the the nit and gritty of the consensus mechanisms and everything at play here, could you just give us an overview of Hedera? And you know, for those who are unaware of of Hedera and Hashgraph, can you just fill us in on you know who would be your logical competitor here? Like, are you trying to replace Bitcoin or Ethereum or AWS or or just where you guys fit into the whole crypto world? Sure. Well, so Hashgraph as a piece of technology is a consensus algorithm. You know, it's an it's a substitute or alternative for blockchain. 
And, and as such, Hashgraph could be used for either permissioned networks, private networks that, um, you know, would compete. Well, I wouldn't even necessarily say it would compete with Hyperledger or Corda or EEA because those are larger platforms that use underlying consensus algorithms. We could plug into uh, those, those platforms with Hashgraph and improve them in various ways. And Hashgraph can also, of course, be used to create a public network, and that's what Hedera is. So Hedera is an organization that is going to market with a uh, a public distributed ledger that is built on top of the Hashgraph consensus algorithm. And so in terms of competitors, Hedera is not really competitive necessarily with Bitcoin, although Hedera will have a cryptocurrency. It already does. The mainnet is live today. It's functional today. And and so there is a cryptocurrency associated with Hedera, but it's much broader than that. In addition to cryptocurrency, there is file storage, distributed file storage, and then a smart contract engine, which is support for Solidity scripts directly. And it, so if you were to say, who is our competition, um, it would be less Bitcoin and more in line with those platforms that have smart contract engines and are trying to you know, provide a general purpose platform for creating arbitrary distributed applications. That's, that's awesome. That's so where we you live. guys basically, you, you can be used for private or public chains based on your consensus algorithm. That, that's pretty interesting. So you guys are like a level down the stack from where we all generally talk about. Um, I guess my question there then is, do you, do you envision Hashgraph being used more for private or more for public use cases, or are you kind of indifferent at this point? You know, I, I think part of a, our advantage, competitive advantage, is that we have Hashgraph that can be used for both. And and actually, we started a company called Swirls back in 2015. So before there was Hedera, there was Swirls. And Swirls um, built the first platform using Hashgraph, the first implementation of Hashgraph, and went to market with that on a limited basis with some some private permission network customers. And and when when we got enough traction there and enough maturity in the platform, we then decided to go ahead and sort of execute phase two, that being Hedera in the public network, but. You know, in my opinion, the future is not public or private. It's absolutely hybrid. If you look at what are the interesting use cases, there there are needs for for both, both the speed and privacy and in some ways more security of a permission network, but also the transparency uh, and, and other features of cryptocurrency and payments solutions that come along with the public network. And so Hedera and Swirls together bring to market a hybrid solution that, well, that, that's unique in the market. That's interesting. So how hard is it for a party to implement Hedera, whether it be public or private? I, I know, so if the, if the focus for the future yeah. is hybrid, I mean, can a business just roll up your consensus mechanism and build an application on it? Or, or can anybody just build on top of Hedera, the public version? How, how hard is it to build on either or sure. interact between the two? I understand. Well, Hedera has its own set of APIs, and these are public APIs 
and I've listed them already, but it's cryptocurrency, distributed file storage, and smart contracts. And to use those APIs, there's an SDK for developers. They can get a client-side SDK that makes it easy to integrate um, support or use of those APIs. There's no license that's required to use those APIs. The developer simply takes the SDK and and they have to have a wallet with some HBAR. That's the name of our crypto, HBAR. They have to have some wallet. And then when they make their, their application, makes those API calls to the APIs, at the same time, they're paying for the API call. So each API call requires a micropayment of HBAR. And, and that's just how the system works. It's similar to Ethereum in that regard. We don't have gas, uh, but, uh, you know, it's the same concept. When you want to use the API, you can use it as often uh, as you like. You just have to make a micropayment, and there's no license required. Developers never even have to talk to us at Hedera to build those distributed applications on top of the public network. On the permission side, there is a lower-level SDK. So, so the SDK in Swirl does not have those three public services, crypto, file storage, and smart contracts. It's, it's just a hash graph consensus server. That's the way I think about it. Um, it's much more general, and because of that, it's much more powerful. Uh, an application can build a... Uh, an application can sit on top of this Hashgraph SDK, which is written in Java, purely in Java, and the application just creates transactions, passes them down to the SDK. The SDK then gossips those transactions around to all the other nodes in this private network. Then all of those other nodes, of course, have the, the application, the same application running on top. They come to consensus on the order of all the transactions, and then the transactions get passed back up to the application that's sitting on top. So it, you know, it's really powerful in that it is providing consensus services that are really fast and fair and secure uh, in this permission context. So level in the stack, so so low a level in the stack, and um, and then the two, you know, you build a permission network application, and that permission network application can be making API calls to the public network, and there are various reasons you might want to do that, and and that's how the two would work together. Got it. That's super interesting. So I know you you basically went into it with the gossip protocol on the consensus mechanism, but it seems that. If, I'm, I'm trying to think about the layers here. So on the base layer of the internet, and then one layer up, you have Hashgraph consensus, and then above that, Correct. cryptocurrencies, storage, sounds like smart contracts too. So it sounds like yep. the consensus mm-hmm. mechanism is, is your definitely your breakthrough here. I know you went into it a little bit before, but can you just compare and contrast that with what we have in Bitcoin, what we have in Ethereum, what we have in others, just so people can get a sense of the differences? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So... Interestingly, there are only a handful of different categories of consensus mechanisms. They're sort of fundamental. Um, the permission network market uses what we'll call a leader-based category, and it works very simply. All the nodes in the network, they're running the consensus algorithm, and those nodes elect a leader in real time, and then they send their transactions to the leader. The leader has a responsibility to put all those transactions in order and then pass them in that order back down to every node. This is what Hyperledger uses. It's what EEA 
uses and Corda uses. They they use variants on this architecture, Raft and PBFT and and others that are there. There are problems with this in that it doesn't scale very well. It's actually a lot faster than proof-of-work blockchain. That's part of the reason that the permission network market uses these as opposed to, to proof-of-work blockchain. It's a lot cheaper, obviously, because it's not using proof-of-work. But it's not as secure either because there's a leader. And anybody could attack the leader. If you know the IP address of the leader, you can do a denial of service attack against the leader and and stop communication across the entire network. Now, what would happen in that case is that the members of the network would recognize the leaders offline. They would elect a new leader, and then they would pick up the, the conversation again. But by definition, everybody has to know the IP address of the new leader. And so the attacker simply changes the target of attack and, and they can keep this, you know, they can keep this type of network down indefinitely as long as they can continue this denial of service attack. So that's a whole big category, leader-based algorithms. And then there's the public network market, right? And and that's blockchain, proof of work blockchain. It works conceptually, it's very simple. You have all the miners in the network. They're collecting all of the transactions in the network. So if Alice pays Bob a, a, a coin, that transaction goes to every miner in the network. They all collect all transactions. They group them into blocks of transactions. And then they compete with one another to solve a really hard crypto puzzle. And the, the miner that solves the, that crypto puzzle first wins the right to take their block of transactions and gossip that block to all the other miners. And the other miners receive it. They validate that they did, in fact, solve that crypto puzzle. That's what we call the proof of work. And then they take that block of transactions, and they put it on top of their local copy of the chain of blocks of transactions, the blockchain. Now, the problem is that it's expensive. You know, we're wasting gazillion dollars on this this crypto puzzle, this proof of work, and it's all just sort of wasted money because of the way that the system works. And and that means that each transaction cost is really high. The you know the the price per transaction is somewhere on the order of twenty five cents or fifty cents. I've seen it as high as sixty bucks or higher when it comes to Bitcoin. So it's really expensive transaction cost, and it's really slow. Bitcoin and, and Ethereum today are doing five or 15 transactions per second. Uh, and on the permissioned network side, the leader-based algorithm side, they're doing about a thousand transactions per second. So big difference in terms of, of performance. So the market has responded. You know, if, if you look at what Ethereum is doing and what some of the other hybrid solutions are doing, they understand the problems with the public network consensus algorithms. And they've responded by trying to create sort of an economy-based approach where all the members of the network are are given a set of incentives, financial incentives to behave in a certain way. And and without going into the detail, the the important thing here is that if you create these policies or this set of financial incentives in the right way, then what you hope is that the network will come to an agreement on which blocks go on top of the chain and, and which blocks don't, and and that you do this without the proof of work. It's just these policies, these financial incentives are going to drive the market to adopt certain blocks and, and not others. 
The problem is that you can't prove anything about the security of the network. It's based on an economic model that's very complicated. It's sort of like saying, is there a way to get the best mathematicians in the world into a room and ask them to write a math proof that guarantees that the stock market will never crash again? And and the answer, of course, is no. And the reason is because that economy is a very complex system. It, it's chaotic, and it's so complex that nobody can, can think about writing a math proof that proves that the stock market will never crash again. Well, these economy-based solutions that the market is exploring have all the same problems. That you can't, that fundamentally, that what you want to be able to prove is that a single participant in the network, I'm not going to call them a miner, we'll just call them a node because they're not mining in the same way that you mine Bitcoins. But but these nodes, you want to prove that it's not possible for a single bad actor or even a, a, a group of bad actors can prevent the network from functioning correctly. You want to formally prove that with math. And you can't do that. And so you got all kinds of problems on the economy-based side. So that's, this that's leads us now to... Uh, yeah, no, sorry, man. That's super interesting. Keep going on that, please. No, no, no. So that, that leads us to sort of hash graphing. How do you solve that problem? How do you build an algorithm that has the math proofs that guarantee that even a, a third, up to a third of the, the members of the network can be evil and colluding with one another to prevent the network from coming to consensus, they won't be able to do it, right? You can, you can guarantee that the network will continue to, to function appropriately, even in the face of that. Turns out, if you go back about 30 years, there is a category of consensus algorithms that we'll just call voting-based, pure voting-based algorithms. And again, conceptually, it's pretty simple to understand how they work. You have all the members of the network and they want to come to agreement on the order of transactions. And so what they'll do is cast votes. You know, if you take two transactions, A and B, each member of the network will say, send a vote to every other member of the network that says, I vote that A goes first or B goes first. All of these votes are, are sent to all the members of the network. And when members receive these votes, they turn around and send a receipt or an acknowledgement that they've received it to all the other members of the network. The problem, and, and that works. I mean, that actually does solve the problem. If you send the votes and the receipts and the receipts of receipts and that sort of thing, it, you can create a consensus system that guarantees that even in the face of up to a third of the actors being evil, it will still work. And in fact, it, it goes beyond that. It achieves something called asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance. And all that really means is that even if there are people attempting to do DDoS attacks, they won't be able to succeed or, or we, it mitigates DDoS attacks in some fundamental ways in that there's no leader to attack. You know, in these voting-based systems I'm describing, they're far more secure than the leader-based systems. They're cheaper than the uh, proof-of-work systems, and they have way better security um, and performance than, than the economy-based systems. The problem with these voting-based systems is they don't scale. 
because you have to send the votes and the receipts over the network. So as the number of the nodes grows large and the number of transactions grows large, just the bandwidth requirement to process the consensus algorithm just blows up. And so they're not practical. And for that reason, nobody uses them in big public network, at least the pure version of this in the big public networks that we have today. That problem of how do you solve the bandwidth problem is was the inspiration for Hashgraph. And that's what Lehman saw. Lehman figured out how to build a pure voting-based algorithm without ever having to send votes over the network or receipts. And, um, you know, some of your listeners have probably heard the terms gossip about gossip and, and virtual voting, and, and those are the answers to the problem of pure voting-based algorithms without having to cast votes. The idea is this. You have the same nodes. You have some collection of members in the network, and they need to send their transactions to every other member of the network. So uh, remember, what we have here is basically a distributed database, or you could call it a blockchain, whatever. But every, every member of the network has a database of transactions or a ledger of transactions And it's replicated across everybody. What that means is that if I create a transaction, everybody else in the network has to get a copy of that transaction to update their local ledger so that we all are seeing the same thing. We we all want our ledgers to stay in sync. That's the whole point of the entire category is that our ledgers have to stay in sync and we all have to have identical copies of ledgers as transactions flow in. So that's the minimum bandwidth that is required. Everybody has to receive a transaction. What Lehman discovered is that if you add on top of those transactions just a tiny amount of information, basically who spoke to whom and when. So if Alice is going to send a transaction to Bob and she just previously talked to Ed, what she can do is add on top of that transaction that she's about to send to Bob uh, a, a digest or a hash of the information that she received from Ed. And this is just a few bytes of information. It's a tiny amount of data. And then she'll create uh, or add to that uh, the hash or digest of the last transaction she just previously created before this one that she's sending to Bob. In, a, in other words, she's going to send to Bob the transaction that she's created and two hashes, and that's it. And everybody that is sending transactions around to everybody, they send that same type of information, their transaction plus two hashes from the previous transactions that they've received. Now, that metadata, you can take it and you can chain it together to create a graph that represents who's talked to whom and when they talk to them. And everybody in the network has this same graph. It's identical in all cases. Cryptographically, we can prove that everybody creates the same graph. This graph is what we call the hash graph because it's a graph that's built by chaining together these hashes that go along for the ride on top of the transactions, the hash graph. The hash graph 
has enough information in it that when Alice wants to know what Bob would vote using a pure voting-based algorithm on the order of consensus, rather than asking Bob to send her his vote, she can simply look in her local copy of the hash graph and calculate what Bob would vote if she were to ask him to vote. But she doesn't have to ask. And and Bob has the same hash graph. And if he wants to know what Alice would vote or Ed would vote or whomever, instead of asking them to send their votes over the network, he simply looks in his copy of the hash graph and he calculates what they would vote. And because we all have the same hash graph and we're using the same algorithm for, for the same voting algorithm for calculating votes, we all come up with the same answers. In other words, we are in consensus using a voting-based algorithm, using something we call virtual voting. We're calculating votes for everybody uh, based on the information that's in the hash graph. And that is the solution. It is a consensus algorithm that achieves the very best security that's theoretically possible, asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance. It does so at scale because we don't have the bandwidth overhead of, of normal voting algorithms. And that means we get fantastic performance. We've achieved the best in terms of performance that we can achieve uh, at the same time that we've achieved the best in terms of security that is theoretically possible. That's, that's a that's a great industry. overview. Yeah, that I mean, for anybody listening, I mean, that's that's the key takeaway is your overview of Federa. That that was excellent. Um, I, I definitely have a few questions there. I mean, just just going back to sure. earlier in your description when you when you talked about you know formally proving the security of a network. I mean, most people assume Bitcoin is say I don't know fifty one percent fault tolerant or you know maybe less because you don't have to control everything because you know majority will just follow mm -hmm. the leaders. I mean, do we actually need formal like security outlines if we kind of know at a high level that some of these networks are fault tolerant to a degree like do we have to actually prove that bitcoin's 51% fault tolerant or 25 or or is your point there kind of like we don't know yeah. exactly what the number is for bitcoin because we don't no well so so my point is that unless all right so if you assume and i think it's a a, a good assumption that in 10 years, these networks are going to be processing trillions of dollars of value, then we can be guaranteed that there will be enough financial incentive there for actors to learn how to attack the networks. And so you have to assume that the networks are going to be attacked by very sophisticated attackers with a lot of money. And given that assumption, then what you want to do when building this global infrastructure is make sure that you don't try to mitigate the problems higher up in the stack. You don't try to mitigate DDoS attacks by building, you know, at layers two, three, or four, whatever. What you want to do is eliminate the possibility of those same DDoS attacks at layer one. In other words, in the consensus algorithm itself. If you get the math right first, then the infrastructure that you build is fundamentally more secure than it would be otherwise. And so that's, that's the main distinction here. The, the theoretical, um, 
achievement in achieving asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance at scale is more important than just we've we've achieved you know a cool piece of technology. You know we've achieved something cool from a theoretical perspective. It's important because in the future, um, when there's an attack on a permission or a public network that brings down the network for 10 hours and enterprises around the world are losing millions of dollars as a result, then they're going to care. They may not care today because nobody's yet built enterprise applications on top of these public networks. But if you look at DDoS attacks that uh, have happened in recent years, you know, that bring down Netflix and YouTube and, you know, some of these other major properties, well, a lot of money was lost. And so if you can, if you can eliminate the possibility of some of those categories of attack first at, at a mass level, then you've got a solid foundation to build upon. And so we're, that's what we've done. We started from first principles and said, let's build the most secure platform that can be built. It's an enterprise grade platform. Enterprises will care about that. And if they don't care about it today, they will care about it when they see the first DDoS attack uh, or first attack that, you know, that results in successful double spins, et cetera. So let's make it enterprise grade from the, from the get go. And that's, and that's been our flaw. And, and is there like a set, like I know like Bitcoin doesn't actually, isn't actually 51% fault tolerant because you could spend less money to, you know, mess with the network for a shorter time period. I'm just wondering, I mean, are you throwing out any like specific percentages on how secure the network will be on Hedera or on Hashgraph? Or? Yeah, well, we are different. We're, we're, we're fundamentally different in terms of the security. So first off, there is no real 51% level of security. I mean, theoretically, the best that one can do is a third. If you, um, if you, if anybody can have a third of the nodes being evil, then that third of the nodes can execute some type of attack to prevent the network from functioning properly or to steal money or, or various you know, sort of subtle ways of attacking the network, even Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is not BFT at all, not Byzantine fault tolerant at all. They, people do talk about this 51% attack. But if you could, um, you know, just hypothetically, if, if a government were to um, fork or, or partition, rather, partition the Bitcoin network, uh, then there are, you know, there are ways of, of attacking Bitcoin that, that are will be successful that require less than having 51% of the nodes in the network being evil evil or or colluding so you know the math is just math and and a lot of people don't understand it but a third is the magic number and you can't do better than that that's that's interesting it's just you know going back to your your longer description earlier you also talked about the leader issue with you know, private or consortium blockchains run on Hyperledger, AWS, et cetera. A lot of the companies I've spoken to basically say that the tech is there to run blockchains on AWS, Microsoft Azure through, you know, Azure blockchain or, or AWS. But I think a lot of them run into issues on who's the one company that's going to control this and, and make decisions, et cetera. Um, could you go into mm, right. you know, why that's how you guys are specifically solving that problem? Because it seems to be a pretty big problem. Yeah. There. No, absolutely. So it, it, it's one of the most important problems to solve, right? There's the tech piece that has to be solved. And I think we've done that 
in Hashgraph, the algorithm. And then there is governance and, and stability. Uh, and you, ha- you need both. You need a stable platform that enterprises know will not hard fork or split into competing platforms and cryptocurrencies because that just creates enormous chaos in the market. So they need some guarantees that the platform won't split. And we provide that. We, we made a promise that it, we can guarantee in some fundamental ways that it won't fork differently than, uh, than everything else in the market. And then, and then if you can solve those problems of performance and security and stability, then the big problem is governance who are making the decisions, who's behind the platform. Our, so to, to answer that problem, I actually read a book <laughs> years ago, about three or four years ago. I read this book called uh, One from Many. It was written by a guy named D. Hawk. And D. Hawk was the founder of the Visa network. Before it was Visa, it was called Bank Americard. This happened back in the mid to late 60s. And in this book, he describes the process that he went through in the creation of the Visa network and how its governance model works. And he outlined those principles. And we've just adopted the same principles and applied them to this particular context. What that means for us is a council initially of uh, up to 39 members, 39 world-class blue-chip organizations that will be the governing council for this global public network. And each of these, and, and we've specifically chosen these council members to be representative of the entire market. In other words, there are 18 sectors of the market that we're wanting to have representation from. This is not a bunch of banks. There will be a couple of banks, maybe, uh, on the council. But, uh, but, but we're not talking about a bunch of banks. We're talking about banks. We're talking about tech giants. We're talking about telcos and insurance companies and retail and global law firms. You know, 18 sectors of the market. And they're geo-distributed, so they're not all in one country. You know, they're not U.S.-based companies. Some of them are, but but we have representation today from Australia and Asia, Japan, uh, the U.S., Europe, India, South America, and 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 finally, they are term limited. They can't be members forever. And in our case. They can serve up to two, three-year terms for a max of six years as a governing council member. There will be an associate class as well that um, are different in some fundamental ways than these governing council members. But these governing council members individually are the most trusted brands in the world. Each company has uh, 10 or tens of billions of dollars of market cap and the most trusted brands in their in their space and in their geography. Now that's 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 interesting. Have, going going into that though, the, I I know you guys I know we're diving into governance here, and you guys have the Hashgraph Council with the thirty nine organizations. I mean, I, I guess the two questions there are: um, what control does these council members actually have? Because I don't think it's consensus mm-hmm. on the network. Yeah. It's more of changes to the platform. And I guess the other question there is: you know, do you guys get any pushback for basically deciding who these 39 council members are, because it's not that many uh, entities at the end of the day. 
No, right. So a, a couple of thoughts. One, well, in terms of what they actually govern, they actually control the Treasury. Uh, it, you know, when we release or, or go what we call open availability, when we achieve open availability, and all that means technically is that people will be able to create accounts on the network, on the main net, without getting permission from us to do so. So when we are at OA, um, we're only releasing a very small fraction of the number of tokens into the market. It, it, actually, on day one, the plan is to release 6% of the total token supply into the market. And by the end of year one, it's not going to be more than 10 to 12% of the total token supply. Well, what that means is that the rest of the tokens are sitting in Treasury, the Dara Treasury. And these 39 actually govern the release of the tokens from the Treasury into into the market. That's one of the functions that they would perform, you know, one of the votes that they would make. But then we have subcommittees. You know, there's a tech steering committee, there's a legal and regulatory committee, coordinated marketing, audit, etc. And these subcommittees will have membership from the 39 and the and and they will provide oversight of the different business functions and operations of the business. It's it's very much like a board level oversight function. And so the the goal had be had been to do really two things. Tap into what is it that the market on a global scale across all industries cares about in terms of a global public ledger. And I think that we're getting that kind of representation from this organization. And at the same time, tap into these world-class organizations for guidance and and oversight in in wisdom in the creation of what we hope and expect to become a hundred year company and you know a company that's around for a hundred years that's providing this next layer of the internet and and so that's what the council is there for and uh, at a high level anyway one, how one we intend there. for it to work yeah no that that's super interesting so one question there I mean there's a lot of different ways where the where foundations face governance. I mean, you have EOS with Block One, where they unilaterally control $4 billion or less now. And then you have Ethereum, which gives out grants to Ethereum Foundation. And then on the way, other mm-hmm. end of things, you have projects like Decred, where the token holders have basically complete control over the treasury because they vote with their tokens. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I think having an organizational structure is novel and it's great for you guys because you actually have a coordinated way to spend funds. I guess my only question, though, is do you do you ever question whether or not it might be better to have to give the token holders a say on this council, or do you think it's better to give large enterprises a say because they have more money to throw around? Well, holding a lot of tokens doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to make good business decisions or the right decisions for the network. That, that doesn't mean that you won't, but just having a lot of money and owning a lot of tokens uh doesn't necessarily mean you're the right person or the person that's qualified to to be making the decisions. In every part of the business, we I mean, so for example, in the tech steering committee, uh, we're pulling in expertise from tech giants that know something about building global platforms. In legal and regulatory, we're pulling in expertise from global law firms because that's what they do, right? And so uh, it, when it comes to finance, uh, same sort of thing. We're looking to the financial institutions and, and global economists that know something about the dynamics of uh, what happens when you set pricing 
for the the services of the platform and what effect that pricing is going to have on the value of the token and what what effect the rates that you pay the nodes in the network for the work that they do what what effect that's going to have on the value of the token these are all really complex decisions and what we want are experts that help us make those decisions in each of their respective areas so that's not to say that we're ignoring the the um you know the the desires and requirements coming from the market just the opposite right our our goal has been to have a broad overview of what those requirements are vertical by vertical by vertical and that's part of the reason that we structured the the um the organization the way that we have but um yeah so i mean that that's our philosophy behind this we want the very best expertise helping in every part of the company that that's and man so on the optimistic side of things a lot of proof of stake systems or delegated proof of stake systems basically they lead with the fact that you can have a smaller subset make decisions and to do that everybody's tokens you can delegate who you want to vote who you want to place your votes with basically you could just follow somebody else and a lot of the selling points there are you know you could follow an expert to vote your tokens on certain areas but my question there has always been, you know, who exactly is the expert? So you guys are basically saying, you know, we have 39 experts in various fields. They can make decisions based on this, and you guys don't have to worry about picking the experts yourselves. Well, sort of. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say it's sort of that way. It, it's sort of like this. Would you really want the the population of the United States to be able to vote on monetary policy, and I think the answer is no. You, you, that's crazy. I mean, that's the reason that we have a Federal Reserve system, and that people are employed full time to do nothing but figure out what the right monetary policy should be for the U.S. dollar. It's the difference between a direct democracy and a representative democracy, and you could take it. You know, keep going down that that um that direction and you get to a, a dictator you know or, or an authoritarian type of governance system and, and so an authoritarian system you get a lot more efficiencies and it can work out well i mean there's no reason to believe that the dictator is doing anything malicious but uh, it's also really easy to corrupt them it's the easiest way to corrupt them you, you know there's only one person necessarily that you have to corrupt or bribe or whatever. In a pure democracy, you get the least uh, uh, or you get the most resistance to corruption, but a pure democracy is not good in making really complex decisions. And in a sort of representative or a council type of governance system, then what you have is in some ways the best of both. You have a governing council that are experts uh, in their respective areas that are making very complex decisions on part of this global network and business. And you, uh, because of, of how we've chosen them, they should be resistant to corruption and, uh, you know, have the benefits of a, of a democracy. That's, that's, the, that's the thought behind it. That's interesting. That's, that's great to hear, man. Thanks for the caller there. And let's, let's just move on a little bit. I want to talk about your developer community and on your mainnet launch. So I'm just wondering, you know, how the mainnet launch is going and how your developer community is growing uh, at this point. So the mainnet launch has been has been going well. We actually launched the mainnet on August 
seventh. That was in the very first version of it. Lehman and I went back to a particular Starbucks in Austin, Texas, actually Cedar Park, a suburb, where we'd spent many hours in, you know, 2012, 13, 14, 15, working on the algorithm and talking about it. And we went back to that Starbucks and we launched the mainnet. And so it's been been active since then. We've made a number of improvements and continue to do so. Uh, we've just made it possible for the first time for people to uh, go and create accounts on the mainnet. There is a KYC process today for anybody that wants to do that, but, but it's possible to go to adara.com and you can create an account. You go through this little KYC process and you can get some tokens. And uh, and, and you can use those tokens to test various parts of the of the network in various ways and, and see some of the features. And in in um, in as a response to that, we are we're paying tokens to to those that help us do that. That's part of uh, the way in which we're sort of distributing tokens to the developer community. It's also the case that developers that want to build product today can create test nets. They can work with us to create a test net. And the SDK for the APIs have been published. Developers are there are developers building product today on the on the network using these test nets and, and that's open and available as well. Honestly I forget what the numbers are. The the numbers have have been kind of hard to to believe and to keep up with. Um, we're on the order of a couple hundred uh, DApps that have, have have expressed interest in some form or signed a, a memorandum of understanding that they're going to be building with us. We have press releases regularly about those DApps that uh, want to make it public that they're building with us. Um, I that I just don't remember all the numbers. I think that we've had, in terms of meetups globally over the past twelve months, say twenty eighteen, we had. Something on the order of a total of twelve thousand people that went through meetups uh, in 2018. We have I don't know 160 or 70 um, um, ambassadors uh, around the world in 80 or 90 cities, something along that those lines. So the the developer community has just been very active and growing virally. Uh, and, and so on and, your on your app, yeah. uh, DAP numbers out there, I just have one question um, as an aside to applications built on 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 Hashgraph. I mean, how do you guys handle? You know, I know a lot of founders answer this question differently. I'm interested in your take. How do you handle potentially illegal mar- applications being built on your network? Say, like an assassination market or something like that. I mean, yeah, is that something where the council steps in, or is that something where you guys just let it grow because? Has to happen because it's open to everything, or or what? what how does that work? No. Yes and no. <laughs> it's it's a little <laughs> bit of both, honestly. I mean, the the interesting thing about our governance model is that we we do make it possible for the governing body to actually govern. Let me just as an aside before I answer your question, I think this is an interesting and important point. If there is no way to compel the the network nodes to adopt the changes that are being decided upon or the rules of engagement that are being decided upon by the governing body, whatever that is, then there's no real way to govern. I mean, and that's what we're seeing in the open source market, 
right? The the open source market has been great for driving innovation and that sort of thing, but it's totally impossible to govern. And as a result, anybody that doesn't like the decisions that are being made by the governing body, they just decide to do a hard fork and or you know split off into a, another platform and competing platform in cryptocurrency, which just creates chaos. And, and you know we saw that in spades at the end of last year and what was going on with Bitcoin, that sort of thing. But if you can solve that problem, if you can make it possible for a governing body to actually govern, which we've done, then you can begin to think about what are the terms of service? What are the rules? And how do we keep this open and distributed, but actually be able to address the problems, the real problems that exist in the market, especially with you know, the kinds of illegal activities or illicit activities that are using the network, how do you handle that? And in our case, what we're doing is we are creating a uh, a terms of use. And uh, this is policy that is still being drafted. It's not settled on, but it will very likely look something like you can build a DAP on top of us and if you decide as the DAP developer to tell us who you are, I mean, do go through a KYC process so that we at least know who is behind a given DAP. And then in the future, something goes wrong. You know, if regulators come to us, if governments come to us and say, you know, this particular DAP is being used for child porn or, or whatever it is, and you have to take it down, then if we know who you are, then there can be a cure period, right? We can come to you and work with you as the DAP developer to try and address the problem. But if we don't know who you are, then we're just going to take it down, right? And, and that will probably end up being the uh, the compromise here that sort of creates a responsible platform where where it's hard to do so otherwise. Got it. And Mance, do you think, I mean, in my mind, that makes a lot of sense because you have a party that can actually take down these potentially very bad and vile sites, unlike that you can't do in other places. But it seems to me wherever that line is drawn could dissuade developers from building on the platform if they think they might get too close to the line or they think they might be too far from the line. Um, I mean, yep. do you think that we have to have very strict wording in your constitution you're going to build out? Because I think historically it's very hard to enforce a constitution that's not in code like we've seen with the EOS. Yeah. Well, I mean, in our case, there are some things that we can do technically that others can't. So, so for example, if we're talking about file storage, distributed file storage, um, it's Byzantine. And what that, in our case, what we've built is a Byzantine file system. And, and what that means is that we can prove that if somebody stores a file, we can prove to them that the file actually has been stored. But more importantly, we can prove that a file has been deleted. And this is important if we're talking about right-to-be-forgotten issues in GDPR, right, and, and other related privacy issues. We we can't prove... I mean, if, if a file gets stored in a child porn and somebody pulls it up on their their monitor and takes a picture of it, of course, we can't prove that that's been deleted. But what we can prove sufficiently uh, well that it could be taken to a court of law, we can prove that the files themselves have been deleted from all the nodes in the network. 
And so we can, you know, we can say, and, and this would extend to smart contracts as well. We can do some things that are similar to that in terms of smart contracts. So we have some, some mechanisms and some technology uh, that makes it possible to actually govern and regulate in a responsible way and provide a terms of use or terms of service policy that is, that is more defined than what you could do otherwise. And so, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a work in progress, but developers, when they read it, they'll at least know what the rules are. Look, if there are some developers that don't want to use us because we have these kinds of terms of service, then they're probably not building things we would want on the network anyway, right? What we're, what we're looking point. for here as a company that is the, you know, it's the mainstream enterprise platform and real enterprises aren't going to object to what we put in policy here. That's, that's interesting and a, and a great answer, Matt. Thank you. And just, I have some rapid fire questions for you before we go, um, you know, or not sure. rapid fire, but hopefully just faster questions for you. So I, I'm just wondering at a high level, going back to the consortium and cloud question, do you guys envision that you'll be faster and cheaper than say AWS or Microsoft Azure, or is that not the specific focus here? It's different. It depends on what you're asking. If we're talking about storing files, for example, no way. Uh, it, we will be more expensive than say um, S3, right? I, I and love the reason that is that if you're, you're the first founder to, to give me that answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a totally different thing. That, that You wouldn't create a YouTube on top of Hedera where all of the videos are being stored in our distributed file system. That just makes no sense whatsoever. But, but you would use our distributed file system for, you know, storing small bits of information that are important to various types of use cases. Hashes of identity information or, you know, who knows, audit records that you want to keep track of and can be, you know, items that, that um, like the DMV wants to, to, to issue a set of claims about a particular individual and put a hash of those claims into our file system. But now we have a system that those claims can be revoked by the DMV or other third parties. And you've got a revocation service that can be used using our file system. These kinds of things. If you have a file that is being replicated across 39 computers or maybe more in the future, then just the hard costs associated with that are 39x of what you would have in AWS. If you store a file in AWS, it's going on to, you know, maybe, maybe a couple of drives, maybe a single RAID system or whatever it is. That's going to be far cheaper at scale than anything you could do in a real file system that's distributed in the way that we're talking about here. But they have different uses. You know, you could build a distributed YouTube system where the videos themselves are stored in AWS or Azure or whatever, but the business logic and the financial transactions, et cetera, are happening on top of Hedera. That sort of thing. That's interesting. And Matt, another question for you. Um, I know you guys have a lot of patents or your associated company has patents. I mean, how do you... Yeah. How do you connect, you know, having patents with being an open source sure. company? How, how does that work for you guys? Well, no, first off, we're not. We're not open source. We are, th this goes back to the ability to govern. 
I fundamentally don't believe you can be pure open source and have any real type of, of governance that prevents the network from hard forking and splitting. And if you don't have the stability in the network, then you're never going to get the enterprise, the big enterprise applications running. You know, the mission critical applications or the applications that are responsible for, for real revenue, they're never going to build on an unstable platform. So what we've tried to do is provide a platform that has some of the features of open source, specifically um, open review. The code base itself with version one of the platform will be open for public review. So every line of source code, people will be able to review and there'll be transparency in what we're building. I think that's really important for trust, right? We want the market to know that we're not building back doors or, or whatever into the code base. So, so there'll be open review. There's no requirement to talk to us to license. Uh, you know, you don't have to get a license to use the Hedera platform. So it's in that way, it's just like Ethereum. But because it's patented, we can guarantee that the platform itself will not fork. And um, that you know, that's just required to take this whole category mainstream. That's how we're using the patent. So, Matt, um, I, I, I always like the idea of not being able to fork in ways of public blockchains that back uh, assets with monetary value. But how do you circle that up with, say, like Linux? Like, how would you compare the ability to be open source, or do you believe not fork with like open successful systems like Linux? Do you think that this is just different and it's more well, of a hybrid approach? I do. I think it's different in that when you combine a cryptocurrency with open source, sort of the dynamics of the project fundamentally change. And I think we've seen that over and over and over again. The stakes are really high for any enterprise application. So, so let me give you an example. If you have, if you have a public network that is being used today, it's being adopted. And let's say there is a, a company that builds a um, they, they they put a security token. They they build a, a ledger on top of this platform, and this ledger is meant to represent the ownership in a building that is generating revenue. So you have a security token for a particular apartment building, and there's a ledger running on a public network, and that ledger you know, the, the rows in that ledger represent who owns the fractional ownership of that apartment building and the balance of, of that apartment building that they own. Now, you have client software on smartphones and on computers that are connecting to the nodes in this public network, and they're making trades. They're changing the balances of that ledger that represents the ownership. Now, think about what happens when that ledger, that public network, hard forks the state of that ledger, you know, not just that one, but every application that's running on that public network, they get hard forked as well. In other words, that, that application, now there are two ledgers running on two different networks, and some of the nodes in the original network have gone to the second network. You've got client software out in the market that is connecting to nodes, and now they're confused, which is the official ledger and which is not. And transactions continue to be made 
and you have two different ledgers that are divergent, there is no official ledger that represents the ownership of this apartment building. This is just chaos, right? And this is the reason, part of the reason that mainstream markets, mainstream enterprise developers haven't adopted the public networks because of this fundamental problem. So you have to eliminate the possibility. So that's is it yeah. like just zooming out here? I mean, is is the argument kind of like Linux is great for building applications, but they could all be separate, whereas Hashgraph, all of these systems have to be linked, so they all have to follow the same rules. So it's fundamentally different. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it is. It's sort of like this: if you were to take Linux and create a hosted version of Linux on a global scale, sort of an AWS based on Linux. And now developers are building enterprise applications on this hosted Linux. And all of a sudden, this version of Linux forks, but their applications fork with it. Then you've got the same problem. But nobody's doing that with Linux, right? But people are doing that with these these public platforms that have a cryptocurrency. And if it's a public platform that uh, people are building enterprise applications on top of, then you have to guarantee that they're not going to fork. Got it. That's interesting. Matt, I got two more questions for you. I know you're busy. I'll let you go after. But uh, my first question, first to last, is you guys raised uh, $124 million, I think, in total uh, at a $6 billion yeah. valuation. Um, I have to ask, I mean, the valuation seems really high to me. It's triple Definities. It's almost a third or less than a third of Ethereum's market. Sure. You know, why? Mm-hmm. And you guys did this in 2018, I believe. So during basically a bear market, which was, which was you know, insane for you guys. Phenomenal. But you know, why do you guys need 124 million bucks? It seems like a ton of money for me to build this out. Oh, well, so 124 million actually isn't. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's not a ton of money. Um, it, it is enough to give us a multi-year runway, you know, a four or five-year runway if we're being conservative on how we spend the money. So, so number one, if you're building a, a real organization where uh, you, you know, you're going to have 60, 75, 100 employees that are doing various things, then $124 million by itself is just not, not that excessive. But to answer your, first, you know, your earlier question of you've got a fantastic or a high, maybe a high valuation compared to some of the other projects, it is kind of misleading. And the reason that it's misleading is because most of the token supply is going to be locked up for a really long period of time. We didn't really go into this in this call, but but bottom line, only a third of the token supply is going to be released to circulating supply in the first four to five years. Our goal is to stretch it out to five, but somewhere between four and five years, we will get to that one third. If you look at how market caps are calculated, they're calculated based on circulating supply. I mean, the sort of the, the, uh, you know, the, the analogy here or the difference here is that on day one, in terms of circulating supply, we're only releasing 6%. Well, 6% represents $360 million. So there's only $360 million of supply circulating supply in the market on day one, on day one, that's what you would call our market cap. And by the end of year one, it only goes to 600 million at current, at current values. If we're talking about 
the $6 billion market cap that you'd mentioned, well, that implies 12 cents a token. At 12 cents a token, we're releasing enough tokens into the market on day one that it represents only $360 million. And again, by the end of year one, 10% would be $600 million. So by any measure, we're at a huge discount to most of our peers in terms of market cap. It, it, it's confusing because people... Mets? Or was this raised in crypto? I don't know. So no. Well, we did we did take Bitcoin, but as soon as it came in, we converted everything to fiat. We we have been very conservative in that. So so nothing was held in in crypto. That's that's good. I mean, I'm just thinking of all the. I mean, bear, it's good that you have a multi year runway because after looking at consensus, Bitmain, Steemit, uh, all their layoffs, it's it's good that you have a multi year timeline here. Well, I mean, some people have asked me in the past, why didn't you hold it in crypto? And it just makes no sense whatsoever because we already have a treasury full of crypto. And crypto, you know, if you look at the crypto market, when when Bitcoin goes up, everything goes up. When Bitcoin goes down, everything goes down. It's just extremely highly correlated. And so, uh, you know, for, for multiple reasons, when the, when the money came in, we immediately converted to fiat. And we'll rely on the value of our crypto, but not anybody else's. That's that's interesting, Matt. So I guess my last question for you. Sorry to keep you, but I have I have a t- I could keep you on here for hours. But uh, you know, sure. the token itself. You know, are there? I'm I'm just wondering the use of the token within your different private and public use cases that you talked about earlier. Um, does do the mm-hmm. private networks built on your network all have to use the token? And, and I'm assuming the public ones do, but. You know, where does the token come into no. play on the different areas here? Yeah. So in a permission network or a private network, th- there's no requirement to use a token at all, right? In that case, it's just, let's say you have a, a, a version of, a distributed version of World of Warcraft that you've built, and that's a permissioned network. And you get 10 of your, your friends to download the, the software and install it. And then you all fire it up. And now you have a permission network of 10 nodes playing World of Warcraft. And the reason that they're playing is, has nothing to do with crypto. It's just they want the value of the game itself. And, and you know who the 10 participants are by name. And so all of that works great. Crypto is required when you go to a public network context because you don't know necessarily who those 10 people are. It's not one computer, one vote. It's one token, one vote. And so you don't want one bad actor to be able to stand up 30 different nodes and all of a sudden overwhelm the voting on the order of transactions. And so instead of one computer, one vote, it's one token, one vote. And it doesn't matter how many nodes you create. Your total weight in terms of vote depends on how many tokens you hold. That's it. And so if we're talking about a hybrid solution, using the game example again, you could have a network of 10 that are playing this World of Warcraft, and you could have thousands of these small networks of 10. But then on the public network, you could have the, uh, you know, the ledger of all of the assets in the, in the entire universe of World of Warcraft. And when, 
a you know a member in a given network picks up a pot of gold or shoots a gun, you know, finds a gun, wh- whatever it is. Whenever they pick up or acquire or drop an asset, that information is recorded in the public network, and it's common and fixed across all of the subnetworks that are running in these permission networks. And anytime you use the public network in any way, you have to pay for the use of that public network using crypto. So in other words, when you're making API calls to change the, the, the ledger entry of who owns what in World of Warcraft, there's a micropayment of HBAR to, to make that happen. So, so crypto is really just for, just for public uh, and, and private networks don't necessarily require it. Well, that's good. I mean, it's good that you're not forcing the crypto on on use cases because or private use cases because that's a pain point obviously and I know you just mentioned micropayments that the micropayments are the main focus of of your main net launch right that's the key use case for it well so if you look at the properties of our platform we have really high performance or high throughput in terms of cryptocurrency compared to the rest of the market and really low cost now the cost and performance for file storage and smart contracts will be slower, significantly slower than than the cryptocurrency, uh, just because of the way the technology works. There are some fundamental limits on what you can do in terms of smart contracts. But when it comes to the cryptocurrency, we're expecting you know tens of thousands, approaching a hundred thousand transactions per second uh, when when we optimized in all the ways that we expect to optimize. And maybe it'll go beyond that. I, I don't know. What I do know is that the math implies that we're going to be really fast when it comes to the TPS for cryptocurrency transactions, and the cost per transaction is extremely tiny, almost hard to measure. That combination implies that micropayments is a good, uh, you know, it, it, it's a good use case for us. And so, yeah, we're focused on micropayments and various use cases for micropayments, how you might take advantage of it, et cetera. That, that's awesome. And man, last question for you. Do you have any numbers around the cost of the transactions per second or is it? You know, I, I don't. Um, I could speculate, but it's probably, it's, you know, order of magnitude, it's going to be something like for, for a cryptocurrency transaction, it's probably going to be something like, a hundredth of a cent or a thousandth of a cent. Uh, we just haven't done that pricing exercise yet. That's a huge difference over Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. Orders and orders of magnitude. No, wow, no question. Awesome. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on. You gave us a ton of amazing information on the project. Is there anything I forgot to ask you? No, I don't know. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground. Um, we, we uh, there's nothing did. immediately that comes to mind. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Mance, where can people learn more about you or follow the project? Sure. Well, Hedera.com, H-E-D-E-R-A, is uh, is a place to go, and you can find everything there. And then we've got we've got a um, you know the Telegram channel and a Discourse channel and and others, but um, Hedera.com is a place to go. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks for your interest. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please rate and review the podcast. Help other people find it. And be sure to use coupon code HOLIDAY on 51pct.io to get a discount on any of our memberships while this offer lasts.